Good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> what should a church do when a member turns to drugs or alcohol to avoid dealing with their personal issues? Should everyone just try to not to notice what's happening and mind their own business? What does the church do when a member continues to stir up discord in the church? What should a church do when a member becomes involved in an extramarital affair? Do you just justify it and say, well, we should not judge because we don't have all the facts? Is church discipline just an old foggy notion dreamed up by a bunch of diehards? The church in Corinth was having some problems in the area of morality. It really is hardly surprising if you know anything about the city of Corinth. God used the Apostle Paul to plant a church in one of the most desperately wicked and moral cities on the face of the earth, Corinth. But the issue is not the immorality in Corinth, but the immorality in the church in Corinth. The truth about church discipline is that it is not a denominational practice. It's not just Baptist or Episcopal or whatever denomination you want to choose. It's not a tradition. It's not just a recommendation. It is a teaching from God's Word, and church discipline is the biblical way to deal with individuals within the church who persist in serious sin and refuse to repent. Obviously, also, church discipline has been abused down through the years. Church discipline is one of those things that most conservative, Bible-believing Christians agree about in theory, but often disagree when it comes to practice. Probably no other area in the 30-odd years that I've been pastor of this church has called me more problem with people who disagree with when we discipline or when we do not discipline. I want us to look tonight at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First of all, he says there's a scandal. He says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now, I recognize that we have children here, and I'm going to try to make this as uh, GP as possible. In the New King James translation actually expresses the apostle's shock at what is happening. The same term is translated commonly in the regular King James, placing the emphasis on the fact that what is happening in the Church at Corinth is common knowledge. Personally, I believe that Paul wants to get both nuances across here, that Paul is shocked at this immorality and that it was common knowledge and no one had to doubt. But notice just how scandalous this thing is. He says, such as not even named among the Gentiles. We could easily substitute 
the word pagan, or we could substitute the word unbeliever. He says, this, uh, these kinds of practices are not even <clears throat> known among the unbelievers. This is such a great wickedness that is shocking, even to the unbelieving world. And this is a case of an intimate relationship between a man and possibly his mother, but more likely his stepmother. But in either case, it is so flagrant a sin that even lost people know that it's wrong. Perhaps most importantly of all, this is not just a one-time problem because it says that he has his father's wife and it is a present active verb which denotes that this sin is continuing. What should be the most horrifying for us is the realization that believers are still capable of committing terrible sin. If you don't believe me, just think of David. As he broke as many as seven of the Ten Commandments in his sin with Bathsheba. One can almost imagine what kind of diagnosis would be given to this relationship today in which a man was living with his stepmother. We would delve into his psychological makeup and undoubtedly find some excuse for the way he's living. Those who have confidence in the therapeutic method would no doubt prescribe long, intensive, expensive therapy. But for Paul, the diagnosis was simple, and so was the prescription. The problem was sin. The prescription was to remove him from the fellowship. Notice the solution in verses 2 through 5. He says, and you are puffed up. Now, he's talking about the church here and a pride problem. And have not rather mourned that he has done this deed, might be taken away from among you, for indeed as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, we begin to look at the process that is being outlined. And to understand the process for church discipline, we really need to turn back to Matthew chapter 18. So turn, if you would, to Matthew 18, verse 15, because here in Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is speaking about the final step in church discipline. And more than any other text, Matthew 18 spells out the process of discipline. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear, hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let me see if I can explain how this works in the modern world. Let's say I hear a report that one of our deacons, and I'll call him Simon, 
because as far as I know, we don't have anybody named Simon. Simon has left his wife, and he's living with another woman. The first step that should be taken is to go to Simon privately and see if any of this is true. Deal in private first. There's no need for exposure at this point. Only broaden the circle of knowledge if there is no response. Perhaps when that is done, we'll find that, yes, Simon did move out of the house, but only temporarily because he moved in with his mom to take care of her while she recovered from her surgery. We need to make sure that we have all the facts straight first. Or it may be that we find out that, yes, Simon is engaged in a relationship outside of marriage, but he feels terrible about it. He wants to get back together with his wife, and he wants to make things right with the Lord. And if that is the case, we would certainly encourage him to do that. Yet even though he has committed a serious sin, there is no need for church discipline at this point because Simon has already repented. He will probably need to step aside from leadership, but that's another issue. Another possibility is that Simon will say, yes, I'm having an affair. So what? Get over it. I don't love my wife anymore, and where I choose to spend my time is not any of your business. Then we got a problem. If Simon responds in that way, then we have to go to step two, which you see in your text in Matthew 18. Now with one or two other people, asked to go as a group to talk to Simon. Perhaps at this time he may have a different attitude. After listening to what the representatives of the church have to say, he may respond by saying, guys, I guess you're right. I've been acting like a jerk. I need to repent. Make things right with God and with my wife. Or he may tell the representatives to get lost and mind their own business. If so, at that point, step three, Jesus tells us we need to take the situation to the church. You don't start by going to step three. You start by going to step one. At that point, it would go before the congregation in a meeting of some type. Everyone would be informed about the previous visits with Simon of his unwillingness to repent, and the congregation would vote to exclude him from the fellowship and no longer treat Simon as a Christian brother. The third step is a very, very painful act, but is what 1 Corinthians 5 describes. Of course, even at this point, Simon can repent and be welcomed back into the church, but if he refuses to do so, the people in the congregation should be encouraged not to associate with him. Right here is where we become to have we have a present day problem. In Corinth, there was a church, and if they disassociated him from the church, he didn't have a church. Today, if you get in trouble at First Baptist Church, then you go down the street to the next Baptist church. That's typically the way it happens. Or You decide suddenly that you're a Methodist or you're a Presbyterian or Episcopalian or whatever it is, and you just keep moving down the road. There's not the ability to put the kind of pressure on that they were talking about in that day. 
But let's look at the expulsion here. It says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I don't know that I ever noticed this before. Maybe you have. But I think verse 5 can easily be divided into three parts. First of all, deliver such a one to Satan. Paul says the end result that the individual is to be turned over to Satan. Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus, Leviticus 18.29, which says, For whosoever commits any of these abominations, the person who committed them shall be cut off from among their people. And they are cut off from the people of God, or they are excommunicated. So what does it mean to turn someone over to Satan? That sounds pretty bad. Well, it is, but it's not saying that you turn him over to Satan so that Satan can take him, but it is saying simply, if this guy persists in his sin and doesn't respond or repent, then put him out of the fellowship and have nothing to do with him. Let him see the full end of his chosen course. In other words... Quit propping him up. It's talking about tough love. Quit encouraging him. When he falls, quit lifting him up. If he won't repent, then let him fall and stay there for a while. Let him hit the wall. Quit putting a mattress between him and the wall. Let him see what it's like to exist outside of the Christian community outside of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ who love him. Let him see what it's like to live with Satan for a while. Perhaps as a result, he may come to himself like the prodigal son did. Why did the prodigal son change? He came face to face with where his bad choices had led him. He was suffering the consequences of his bad choices And that can be a real revelation for people. The second thing it says is for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds particularly ominous. What does he mean when he says, for the destruction of the flesh? At least one possibility is that it is speaking of the destructiveness of sin. You've probably all seen the giant placards going down the freeway that says, you know, shows the meth diet with the picture of the lady on one side and then the picture on the other side after she's been on meth for about two years. That's the destructiveness of sin. Recent studies have, have shown in cases involving immorality that there are, there are profound and destructive effects in the body. Twenty-five years ago at the start of the so-called sexual revolution, The incidence of STDs among teens in the United States was 1 in 30. The specific diseases were rather easily treated. Today, among teens, the occurrence of STDs is 1 in 4. And instead of there being a handful of diseases, there are now more than 30 strands. And these new viruses are often untreatable, incurable and deadly. Sin brings about the destruction of the body. 
regardless of whether it is the body of a believer or an unbeliever. Paul's saying if he keeps sinning, his life would end before it would otherwise have ended. And then that phrase, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I think it's very important for us to understand that what is under consideration here is fellowship, not salvation. As hard as it is to conceive that this person is saved, it is assumed that this person is saved. You say, can a person who's saved really be guilty of such sin? Yes, unfortunately, they can. If the guilty person was not assumed to be saved, then he would not have been being contemplated as being present in the day of the Lord. Which brings us to the hope. Paul would have agreed with the writer of the old hymn, Rescue the Perishing, when he wrote, Weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells the believers, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest ye also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word restore used in Galatians 6 means repair. When someone is caught up in sin, the mature believers are to try to repair their brother or sister. So what happened to the man reported in 1 Corinthians 5? I can't say for sure, but I believe that he's the man spoken of in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. The New Living Translation of this verse says, He was punished enough when most of you were united in your judgment against him. Now it is time to forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he may become so discouraged that he won't be able to recover. Now show him that you still love him. I wrote to you as I did to find out how far you would go in obeying me. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive him for whatever it is to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are very familiar with his evil schemes. In my mind, at least, it would seem that the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 finally made it right and was restored. The last thing that we note is a clarification that begins in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually moral people, yet I consider, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or a covetous, or, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside. Do you judge those who are inside? Do you not judge those who are inside? 
But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul says that in the past, what he has said has been twisted. What he has said especially about separation. And so he now sets the matter straight. He says he's not telling them to avoid having contact with unbelievers. We're not to avoid the world. In fact, we're sent to be salt and light to the world. We're not sent to pass judgment on the lost world. That's God's job. But church discipline is not for the lost. It is for the saved who stubbornly continue to sin. Let me close by by sharing this thought. Think gently of the erring. You know not of the power with which the dark temptation came in such an unguarded hour. You may not know how earnestly they struggled or how well until the hour of weakness came and sadly they fell. Think gently of the erring. Oh, do not forget how darkly stained by sin. He is your brother yet. Heir of the self-same heritage, child of the self-same God. He has but stumbled in the path which you in weakness trod. Speak gently to the erring. You may lead him back with holy words and tones of love from misery's thorny track. Forget not you have sometimes sinned and sinful yet may be. Deal gently with the erring then as God has dealt with thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for their attentiveness. And Lord, I pray that in some way, something we've shared tonight may be a help to someone, an encouragement to them. Father, I pray that we truly might not be judgmental of those around us, but we certainly might be willing to help them when we've seen them fall. Because we certainly know that when we ignore the fact that they've fallen, it doesn't help them at all. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be brave. We realize that many times in the past, uh, church discipline has been misused. The whole idea of excommunication brings uh, bad thoughts to many of our minds because it's been so misused. But help us to understand that the purpose is restoration. Always the purpose is restoration. Father, I pray that you give us the strength that we need to meet the world in which we live. Corinth was a terrible place, but it doesn't hold anything that's much different from the world in which we live. And day by day it becomes a little bit uh, dark, more dark. And so we need a a closer walk with you in order to be able to meet the challenges. Father, help us now if we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Dan's going to be.